0: all the girls are complicated everyone
1: Welcome to episode 98 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Ailea Danner-Grubbs, and with me today are Alexis Neal and Marie Hawes. Hello, Alexis and Marie. Hey. Hi. Let's introduce ourselves for any listeners who are new to the program. Um, Alexis, why don't you go
2: first? Sure. Uh, I'm Alexis Neal. I live in southern Missouri with my husband, Coyle, of the City of Man podcast and our two little boys. Uh, Primarily, I'm a stay-at-home mom, although I do work part-time as an adjunct teaching law-related classes at Southwest Baptist University, uh, where my husband's on the political science faculty. Um, Actually, our spring semester just started this week, so I'm still trying to get back into the academic mindset after the holidays and, of course, kicking myself for not getting more done over the break. So,
0: you know, the usual. Absolutely. Marie, what about you? Well, I'm uh, Marie Haas, a regular panelist on the show, although I haven't been on very much lately because actually I'm having a baby soon. So I've been taking a little break. Yeah, congratulations. (laughs) That's great. Um, And I'm finishing up an MDiv degree at Yale Divinity School, so I'm also getting into the uh, swing of the semester. I live in Connecticut with my husband, Jonathan, and two cats, and now a very big belly, so (laughs) that's me.
1: That's wonderful. Um, And I'm Danner Grubbs. I live in Trestville, Alabama with my husband, Brian, and our two young children. I got my degree from Wheaton College in elementary education with an emphasis in Bible and French. And uh, I taught in a classroom for six years, but now I homeschool my children and work in several ministries at our church, uh, including co-leading our church's young adult group with my husband. Um, Okay, so um, before we begin, um, I wanted to give a couple of disclaimers. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about the Star Trek television shows and movies in regards to their portrayal and treatment of women, both on and off screen. Um, I wanted to say up front that in the interest of time, we are going to save a robust discussion of the ways Star Trek addresses faith and religion for another episode. Um, And also, although we're not going to include the Star Trek novels in today's talk, we do invite listeners who have insight into that aspect of the franchise to continue this conversation and share your perspective with us on Facebook or by email. We'd love to hear from you. Um, And one final note, towards the end of the episode, we will be discussing the newest television show, Star Trek Discovery. And while we'll try to keep the spoilers to a minimum, we will probably be giving a few things away. So if you want to be surprised, uh, pause the podcast when you get to that point and go watch the show and then come back and listen to us talk about it. (laughs) Um, Okay, so let's start by giving a little background about our experiences with the Star Trek franchise. Marie, what's your history with Star Trek and do you have a favorite show or movie? Sure.
0: Well, uh, I kind of grew up watching Star Trek Next Generation especially, as sort of something my whole family liked to watch, all the Star Treks basically, but starting with the Next Generation, and we watched Deep Space Nine and Voyager sort of as they were winding up, so while episodes were still coming out. Um, I only started to watch the original series and the original series movies after seeing these later shows. And uh, my family, we even tried to watch Enterprise when it came out. We saw a lot of it. I don't remember much of it. Not my favorite series. Um, I did see the newer movies in the theaters, um, and in preparation for this episode, I've watched the first season of Discovery. I'd say, in terms of least favorite Star Trek, probably the film Nemesis, which is just a mess. And um, in terms of favorite, uh, the whole the next generation series just sort of remains like the quintessential Star Trek for me because it was what I was watching first as Star Trek. Although I'm sort of coming to recognize all the claims that people make for Deep Space Nine really being probably the best <laughs> Star Trek series we have so far. Um, yeah, and that's and, that's really interesting. And. What was the, there was a question about female characters, right? Oh
1: yeah. What um, what female character do you most identify with or admire? Do you have one that stands out to you? Um, but when I was growing up,
0: I, I'm not sure I really super identified with a lot of the female characters, but I kind of admired like Janeway as like, wow, she's a captain. There's a woman who's a captain. That's a big deal. Um, But I also kind of sort of just absorbed and appreciated that the women were integrated as these regular members of the crew and main characters in the series. And right now, I'm sort of more interested in how Jetsia Dax was portrayed, because as as she's a character whose trill, whose symbiont had been joined with both male and female hosts in the past. So uh, that kind of aspect of her character provides her with this kind of uh, non-binary aspect when it comes to gender, even though of course she's still presented as a female character and uses she, her pronouns, but it's kind of, um, uh, yeah, anyway, her character is interesting to me right now.
1: Yeah, the, the trill is a very interesting way that they've um, kind of been able to discuss gender in a completely different way. I, I agree with that. That's very interesting. Um, Alexis, what about you? What's your history?
2: Well, I uh, I don't actually have a whole lot of history going back particularly far. Um, My dad and my brother watched some Star Trek together and I was aware of the original series and saw bits and bobs of it or of some of the original the movies based uh, around the cast from the original series. Um, but at that point I wasn't—I hadn't really developed into a fan of genre fiction in general or science fiction in particular, but uh, I was blessed to marry a Star Trek fan. Um, I don't think he qualifies as a full-blown Trekkie, but he certainly appreciates the universe and has seen much of it. So um, since then, we've gone back, and he has been introducing me to a significant portion of of what's out there. Um, we've not gone back and watched the original series, but um, I have seen all of the feature films and most of Next Generation and Deep Space Nine, almost all of Deep Space Nine, and we're about halfway through Voyager, and I have been advised that Enterprise is in my future um, as well once we get through Voyager. Um, And then also, um, in preparation for this podcast, I did start watching Discovery, but wasn't able to finish uh the first season before my week long free trial of CBS All Access expired. So very very strong thoughts about having to go through so many different streaming services to watch T V. But um
0: Yeah. I uh I, I
2: tried the week long and that's all they're getting from me for right now. And uh so I watched most of it, but not not didn't complete the the whole um the whole first season. Um and I do um I do love it. Um, I, I like science fiction in particular as a genre, um, and it's a genre that I think lends itself particularly well to shorter works like short stories or episodes of television. Um, so you have a lot more room in a full season or multiple seasons of television uh, right. to engage with the various social and political issues um, that you can bring up in a science fiction context. Um, and I just think you can do a lot more of that than you can in a single feature film. Um, because yeah, you can just, it's essentially short stories, uh, in a, in a visual format. Um, I don't know what my least favorite movie is. Uh, obviously Wrath of Khan is great. I love the voyage home. I love silly campiness in my movies and I like, you know, I, I just, I like to have an enjoyable experience. I don't tend to gravitate towards movies that are emotionally exhausting. Uh, so that's probably one of my favorites of the movies. Um, And the shows, I think, that I've seen primarily are are pretty comparable. Um, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, and Voyager. Um, There are some frustrating elements in each of them and frustrating characters and storylines, but some great ones, too. So far, not super impressed with Discovery, though, again, um, I haven't seen the whole first season. And most of my frustration is not based around issues of feminism, but plot and mood choices that I think don't fit as well in the Star Trek universe or at least what I think of um like I said I I like a little more optimism a little more uh humor and whatnot um but yeah so who knows it it may improve I don't know that I needed a gritty Star Trek reboot but gritty is is gritty anti-heroes are in so I guess I just have to make my peace with that as far as female characters sort of like what Marie said I don't know that there was anyone that I particularly identified with um I've liked most of them, which um, is better than I can say about a lot of women on a lot of shows. Uh, The one I really didn't like was, uh, was Tasha Yar because she was just so grossly incompetent. But you kind of have to be grossly incompetent as security chief or nothing ever happens on the show. So... Fair point. <laughs> I do realize that some of that's just like if, if nothing ever gets on the ship or you nip it right in the bud, then you don't you don't have an episode. So um Worf wasn't necessarily all that much more competent. But, man, I just thought Tasha Yar was a waste of space. So um she was the one who bugged me the most. But there were things I liked about, I think, all of the rest of the female characters. And definitely uh, I loved the dynamic of Judzia Dax, particularly her interplay with um Cisco, where she was basically his old man friend. Because that's the body that she was joined with when she knew him first, um, while still interacting with the rest of the crew um, and her present female uh, union, I guess, that she had. So I thought she was a great character. But yeah, I mean, they've they've all been great. I loved Kira and I liked Crusher and... Um, yeah I uh Jane Way is great on Voyager but I I also liked Taurus, and I liked I actually really like Kess, too because I think she brings an alternative way to be a strong woman um that's not just the stereotypical um science
1: leadership way so Yeah, those are all really good points. It's interesting to see your perspective as somebody who's introduced to it, not as a child, you know, not having grown up with it. Because I think we definitely, um, at least I know I do, like have blind spots towards the the things that we grow up with as opposed to the things that we're introduced to as a a fully reasoning adult. So that's that's interesting. Um, My personal history of Star Trek begins before I was even born. Uh, My dad named me Ilea after Ailea's theme, the orchestral piece by Jerry Goldsmith for Star Trek, the motion picture. Um, Ailea was the bald alien in that movie. Um, And her theme song is a a beautiful orchestral arrangement. And I I spoke to my mother this morning and told her about doing the podcast. And she said, be sure to tell them that you were not named after the bald alien. (laughs) So just for the record, my parents did not name me after a bald alien. They named me after her theme song, um, which is beautiful. I actually walked down the aisle to it at my wedding. Um, it's very lovely. Um, so obviously, my family takes Star Trek very seriously. Um, my dad especially loved the original series. And so that was kind of on in the background of my childhood. Um, I don't think I've ever sat down and watched every episode from beginning to end, but I am very familiar with, you know, pretty much all of them episodes. Um, my mom loved the old movies. Um, and uh, so we would rent those from Brock- Blockbuster quite frequently. And um I feel like I'm just really dating myself right now with all of these references to the um, old school stuff. But Saturday evenings were, you know, family movie, family TV night, um, watching the new episodes of Star Trek Next Generation um, when they would come on. That was always fun. And we would tape them on VHS, another dated reference, so that we could watch them during the week more. And I re- rewatched them over and over to the point where my sister and I still have many, many of those epi- episodes memorized. Um I tried to watch DS9 when it came out. I never made it past the first season. I did not love it. Um, And after that, I kind of gave up on the new Star Trek shows. That was also when I was going off to college and kind of had other things on my mind besides watching TV. Um, I saw a few episodes of Voyager here and there, but never really sat down and watched it from the beginning until recently. Um, I've started watching it and appreciate it way more now. Um, I really like it. Um, It's definitely my favorite of the later shows. Um, I've never seen Enterprise Uh, maybe one or two episodes, but never anything serious because I, I didn't like it and I heard it was terrible. So I wasn't ever really interested in it. Um, And like you guys, I just watched the first um, eight or so episodes of discovery um, in preparation for this podcast. Um, I've seen all the movies. um, Most of them just, you know, once or twice. Um, I was pleasantly surprised by the newest set of movies with Chris Pine. I I really like them as just kind of fun, you know, Uh, action movies um we'll talk more about those in a little bit um as far as characters i admired i grew up with deanna troy as my ultimate like goals for womanhood like to me she was beautiful and complex and feminine and strong and vulnerable and knowledgeable all at once and everybody respected her everybody listened to her she was wise and so as a young girl like she was an ideal type of woman for me and um so i always just kind of uh, even though, like, as an adult, I could probably come up with some uh, issues with, you know, that kind of a character. I still, like, I don't know. I have a lot of respect for putting somebody and on the bridge and, and saying, like, your job is empathy, and we value that enough to make it one of the, you know, bridge crew. And I, I think that's cool. So, uh, so anyway, she's probably my, my favorite. But um, I definitely like Janeway, too. I like um, they definitely had female admirals and captains on the other shows kind of on the periphery they'd show up now and then but having the main you know bridge captain be a female is um really lends an interesting dynamic to to voyager i think um okay so um let's begin our discussion by talking about some of the things that star trek has gotten right in its treatment of women over the years alexis will you start us off
2: yes i will um our first article that we are talking about um, with regard to the strengths um, of Star Trek historically um, is focused on <clears throat> on screen what they did right on screen right so we looked at an article in Wilson Quarterly called Star Trek's underappreciated feminist history um, and so in that um, article um, there are so so the author basically goes through a lot of the accusations against the original series um and, and sort of pushes back on some of them. So, so the, the one of the, um, the common points that people make is the, the attire that the women wear. Um, and depending on your viewpoint, that can be seen as sexist and objectifying. Um, but the counterpoint to that is that the actresses themselves say that it was viewed by them, at least, uh, as more sexually liberating. Um, that they were free to wear those kinds of clothes, um, and, and, um, be more comfortable with their sexuality, uh, maybe than women in the past have been able to do. Um, and uh, And, in this piece, uh, the author particularly points out that in order to to make the show palatable for its audiences at the time, um, there was a need to, or at least a perceived need to ramp up the femininity of the, the women in order to reduce or offset any perceived threat. Uh, so they had very feminine clothing, uh, and then had their romantic dependence on the men on the ship, uh, that they tended to assume nurturing roles in addition to their normal scientific duties. Um, and, uh, so some of that was supposed to help offset, uh, people's discomfiture with, um, Uh, with what they were seeing as far as women and men working alongside in a traditionally male uh, context. Um, And and just as a side note, um, this is still an issue that goes on today. Uh, We actually discussed it in our episode on Mike Pence and the Billy Graham rule and sort of the the tensions that arise with men and women working together um, even now. So... um, Uh, we've, we've talked about that at at length there. Uh, But anyway, she points out that even, even when you had this nurturing roles and these, these other feminine uh, markers going on to sort of signal to the audience, this is not a threat to you. This is not a threat to you. It was also the case that these women were not cooking. They were not cleaning. uh, They weren't raising kids um, and they weren't getting married. Um, Now, I think it's important to note um, from, at least from what I've seen in the later series, right? No one is cooking or cleaning. Um, That's kind of, they've been able to to remove the need to to do that by a technology um and i think in the original series there weren't any kids allowed on the starships anyway so that was again sort of removed nobody on the starship was raising kids um and maybe that's how they made it more palatable was by just saying um it would be a bridge too far maybe to have men doing cooking cleaning or raising kids Um, so they just created a technological environment where no one was doing those things um later on we see um uh, families living on board starships, um, and so then you have more, um, more discussion of what that means for childcare um, and and other uh, issues involving gender roles. Um, so the idea was these women might still have been visually objectified in in the series but were also viewed as professionally competent so still overall an improvement um uh, as you mentioned um ailea they did have commanders uh, female commanders sort of on spock's level that they would encounter not necessarily from the federation but from other civilizations um and uh, there was even some potential for them to to be expressing the idea of using their femininity uh, that is their sexy clothes to get get ahead um there was a great line uh, in this piece that talked about how they could, um, they basically that there are two primary markers of femininity, domesticity or beauty, and beauty, and you can sacrifice one or the other, but not both. I like so that
1: too. Yeah, that's a yeah, great line.
2: it's a great. Although, man, that hurts. But um, but that's a great line, and it is true. Like they were, they were not domestic, but so they still made them, you know, attractive. Although, again, not like it's not an issue today. We aren't all lining up to watch tv and movies full of unattractive normal looking people like we would see at walmart like we still visual media is dominated by attractive people so that's that's i don't know that that's just a an issue of feminism and gender it may just be an issue of of visual medium i agree with that yeah um the the author also points to the fact that the f- the fan base there were a lot of loyal females in the fan base um and many of them specifically pointed to Star Trek as their inspiration for pursuing STEM careers um so yeah so basically pointing to all of these these ways where it was sort of functioning within the limitations of its time so it was feminist but of course it was feminist with the limitations that, that they had then um of a, and of course not just of the time but a network show at the time. So uh, a mass communication um, uh, presentation, right? So it's going to have to be more acceptable to more people in order to continue to exist. Um, there's a bit at the end that I didn't really understand about beauty and humanity and metaphors and space. Um, we don't have to get into that, but we can if if people feel real passionate about it. Um, did you ladies have thoughts on that first piece discussing the feminism of women on screen?
0: Um, well, one, one thing I guess to emphasize, uh, like you pointed out, is that it's not necessarily like things that the original series got right so much as, um, Shannon Meesey in this article, drawing on an article by Patricia Vettelbecker, um, is pointing out the, the constraints that the show is operating under. So it's not like, These constraints themselves are necessarily a great thing, but does help explain the presentation of women, I guess.
2: No, sure. Yeah, she's she's I mean, I think the idea is not that this is an ideal world, but that sort of within the limitations, it was pushing as it could. And it was making maybe more progress than we we might think, looking
1: back where we don't have some of those same limitations now. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was interesting that they mentioned in the article that um, the original series aired 12 years before women were first admitted as candidates for NASA's astronaut program. So, you know, this is more than a decade before women were even allowed to, you know, audition to be in space. And here's, you know, a woman on the bridge and the, you know, the women in sick bay and all that stuff. Um, I thought that was, that was interesting. Of course, Mae Jemison talks about being inspired to, to apply and, um, and all that, but yeah, I, I thought that was interesting um and and you picked out that quote about the two major markers of femininity, but I was thinking about what you said that I mean beauty is kind of a given in Hollywood, right like the men are beautiful too that's that's not necessarily something that like, oh well, we have to keep them beautiful, like they're actors come on um but but there are other major markers of femininity that I feel like you have to pick and choose, you can't sacrifice them all, and I was curious if you guys had any other things that you feel like are, like, on the table, like, you can be, I I was thinking about, like, um, caregiving and gentleness, like, you can be domestic, you can be gentle, you can be, um, you know, caregiving, and maybe you could take away one of those, maybe you're not domestic, but you still have to be gentle, you know, or, or you could take away the caregiving, but you still have to be, you know, um, empathetic, you know, so, like, Do you feel like that there are other factors that kind of have to stay or be traded back and forth in order for it to be palatable to audiences either then or now?
0: Hmm, Well, I think that definitely the emphasis on the femininity, the beauty, the gentleness of the women in the original series uh, has a lot to do with trying to take away from this uh, fear, like the, the the writer points out, of um, women uh, in the workplace and women in space as well. And um, one thing that Vettel Becker po- uh, talks about in the article that this is drawing from is that even though this is before women in NASA, it's not before Valentina Tereshkova, uh, the, the Russian cosmonaut, um, and the... The the kind of emphasis on the femininity and beauty of the women in the original series is, she thinks, perhaps a little bit in contrast to what was perceived as the mannishness and unfemininity of uh, Tereshkova from an American perspective. Um, And uh, so it's trying to make women in space more palatable in that way with this whole... um, uh, america versus russia thing going on as well yeah that's a good point
2: yeah i'd want to think more about that my my instinctive response is yes there's sort of a constellation of attributes that we associate with femininity and we've we've talked about this before on our complementarian uh, episode complementarianism episode and our egalitarian episodes and then uh, victoria and i were on a city of man episode about uh, femininity as well and it's a, a whole other difficult, I think, discussion to, to have. Um, but I do think that you would want to maintain, if it's true that, that our idea of femininity has this, you know, consists of this constellation of attributes, at some point you would, if you took away enough of those, you would start to lose the critical mass necessary to communicate femininity to your audience. Um,
1: and so you, you'd
2: have to balance that and say, and, and even from a narrative perspective, like you would want, like the, the things you tweak, you show that you throw those into sharper relief by having everything else be the same, right? That's sort of like a, I mean, just as a storytelling, like the, they're, you know, what you expect, what you expect, what you expect, and then what you don't expect. Well, that draws your focus to the way that they deviate from whatever you think the norm or standard ought to be. Um, and so some of that can be a necessary thing you actually want to focus, draw focus to. Look, these are women in space, or you want to draw focus to whatever the, the attribute is that your character possesses that deviates from our expectation for stereotypical femininity. Um, so some of that could, could, I think, be a narrative choice that's being made. Um, but of course, whether or not that particular constellation of attributes should in fact be what we think of when we think of femininity, um, is a separate issue. Um, you know, from whether, whether it is as to whether it, it ought to be, I, I think it's almost certainly is. I think if you start to pull enough of those attributes away, you end up with a character that people don't immediately identify with, um, and relate to as a female character. Um, again, not necessarily saying it ought to be that way, but I am, yeah, I would say pretty confidently that when you're writing a character, you're going to want to make sure you give her enough feminine markers, um, to make her still read as feminine to your your audience yeah that's a really good point
1: Uh, i was thinking about even like lieutenant yar like you were talking about um she's probably one of the least like overtly quote-unquote feminine um characters in at least the main cast in the early days um, even in the early days of the next generation. And yet, they still, you know, she's got the short hair and she's very kind of aggressive and not, you know, as vulnerable as a lot of the others are. But but she's still, they go out of their way to show how desirable she is to men. Like, even in the second episode, um, they have her have this relationship with Data that gets called back over and over again. Um, and then, like, a few episodes later, she actually gets kidnapped by this group of uber masculine men. Um, who you know, desire her? So I feel like they really worked hard to show that, you know she's she you know, some of the constellation has has been removed, and yet, you know, don't worry, guys, she's still uh, very much a woman and and very desirable. Look, see all these men desiring her?
0: <laughs> hmm, that's a great point,
2: yeah, well, and that's um, and we haven't gotten this far in our voyager viewing, but i I did peek ahead, but seven of nine, I think, does something sort of similar where she's supposed to be almost Vulcan in her rationality, um but of course, also supposed to be a bombshell um and so um trying to sort of okay we're going to make her we're going to make her you know have these rationality and and we talked about this again in our femininity episode but these these ideas of rationality these these masculine markers um but we'll make sure to offset them by making her the at that point yeah because i think at that point Kess has been primarily sort of the the attractive Mm -hmm. um uh Magnet for, for male attention on board, uh, but Kess, if I remember correctly, Kess sort of departs right around the same time Seven of Nine comes on. Um, so she, but she very much assumes that that mantle of the the visually um, appealing bombshell um, to, count, yeah. to counteract <laughs> her her rationality. So she gets yeah. to
0: still be rational because she's hot. Maybe maybe a cat suit is liberating in our cultural context, but that's not the only thing that's going on there. <laughs> yeah, so
1: sort of. right, really right. <laughs>
0: All right. What about the uh, the off-screen aspect,
2: Alexis? Right. So the other piece that we read was from Paste Magazine, and that, as you said, focused on women um, off-screen. Um, and uh, let's see here. Pull that up here. Um, so, yeah, the forgotten history of the women who shaped Star Trek. And so the the, the central themes that this author are, is focused on um, is this idea of the tension between. And, and this is, uh, again, focusing on the original series, the tension between the original series as remembered and the, the original series as it actually existed at the time. Um, so she points out, you know, we have this. Oh, uh, oh it was
0: they um, River Solomon. The pronouns are they.
2: Right. Sorry. Um. Yeah, so the author points out, uh, that there is this tension there, right? So, um, the, the original series was perceived as groundbreaking in terms of representation with a black woman and Asian man on the bridge, a Jewish man as a leading character. But um, as the author points out it, behind the scenes uh, that we see that character development is lacking and the behind the scenes treatment was much less progressive than we might hope with issues of pay and things like that. Um Similarly, we might also think back and remember the original series as um as a more humorous show um, with outlandish adventures. Uh, But uh, the author argues it was actually much darker and grittier, uh, less lost in space and more twilight zone. Um, So there's that tension there. And then similarly, our tendency to characterize Star Trek as a utopia um, the author argues is a misrecollection of the true horror of the series. Um, and, and a side note here, I would argue to be a little bit careful because I don't think the point of Star Trek was that there's a utopia everywhere. The point was the Federation is a utopia, um, and a utopia in very specific ways. Um, and that the relative lack of conflict within the Federation freed Starfleet to interact with threats from other often decidedly dystopian, alien cultures. Um, So most of the time when our Starfleet members act wrongly, it is often due to outside influences. They're more like ambassadors for utopia, because if everybody lives in a utopia, it's hard to cook up a really exciting story. So the fact that they encounter bad things doesn't mean they don't come from a utopian culture. Um, But anyway, continuing this pattern of tension, uh, the author points out that while certainly in, in many respects Star Trek was a sexist show, uh, it was also feminist. Uh, and Solomon dis- defines this or focuses uh, this definition of feminism uh, on the fact that Star Trek was deeply concerned with the violent nature of the patriarchy, um, that the show demonstrates skepticism toward men in power and portrays men as a class that can be consistently and just unjustifiably exploitative. Um the show also takes a firm stance against sexual violence and sexual exploitation, though as Solomon points out, it does also show a lot of that, so that is a problem in and of itself. Um, then focusing on this feminism um, within uh, within the original series, Solomon attributes that feminism to the participation of several specific women in off-screen roles. Um, so Solomon mentions, uh, DC Fontana, uh, short for Dorothy Catherine, um, using her, uh, her initials in order to, um, avoid some of the, the sexism and the consequences of that, um, who was involved from the beginning as a writer, story editor, um, creator of original ideas, and eventually produced and ran the animated series. Um, Lucille Ball, um, yes, that Lucille Ball from I Love Lucy was at this point the, uh, sole owner of Desilu Production Company and was the one who produced the show and went with it even when other people had passed on it and her own advisors recommended against it. Um, And then she continued to fight for it um, uh, during its run. Um, Solomon also mentions uh, Betty Jo Trimble, a fan who organized the letter writing campaign to keep Star Trek on the air um, after its second season, uh, leading to its continuation in the third season. Um, That campaign yielded uh, 100,000 letters and um, was a contributing factor towards the fandom becoming an actual cohesive thing. Um, And then also uh, Deborah Michelle Langsom and Sherna Comerford. Um, also fans who created and edited the first fanzine. And Solomon also points out that um, the uh, first uh, rounds of conventions uh, post-cancellation of the original series were organized predominantly by women. Um, so the big conclusion that Solomon reaches is that Star Trek's success in social prominence had little to do with the politics of the casting and the progressiveness of the storylines, and everything to do with the labor women directly involved in building the series and its fandom. Um, so that fan pressure kept it alive after it should have died. Um, so to the extent that Solomon is trying to, um, <clears throat> trying to give credit where credit is due and highlight for us some folks who made significant contributions to the original series that we might not know by name. I applaud that. I'm on board with that. Um, I think it's a little bold to give all of the credit to fans um, because there are things that fans are fans of that are terrible and never go anywhere. Um, It's significantly easier for fandom to have the effect that it wants to have. If the actual subject matter, if the actual source uh, material um, is um, has something to it um, and can actually have good quality. Um, So it's undoubtedly the case that many other people were essential contributors to the Star Trek universe, particularly the original series. Um, any production of this scale is going to require a lot from a lot of people. Uh, but the, the tone of this piece seemed to be we are wrong to give Gene Roddenberry credit for Star Trek. Um And none of these examples of specific women who contributed to the show um, shows that Roddenberry wasn't the mind behind Star Trek or isn't deserving of the credit he's given. Um, And I was trying to think of other other shows and other examples. We still credit Joss Whedon with being the creative mind behind Firefly and Buffy. But of course it wasn't a solo accomplishment and there were a lot of men and women who were involved in that. Um, and and uh, to borrow a topic from our sister podcast uh, over it Before They Were Live, lots of people worked on Disney films over the years um, and sometimes they were even picking up the slack and compensating for the shortcomings of Disney's namesake. But that doesn't mean we can't celebrate Disney, Walt Disney for the genius that he was. So I, I, I'm i not sure. So by, by all means give credit to the many uh, contributors as Solomon does. But to the extent that Solomon wants to reduce the credit roddenberry receives this essay i didn't think um justified that conclusion um did you guys have thoughts on uh, on the the women behind
1: um our off screen rather Well, oh, i don't, I don't know, know if i thought that it was necessarily saying we shouldn't it give. um like we shouldn't give sole credit to him which you're I mean you're right like we do tend to you know pick one person and give the the credit to that person across the board um I was trying to find the, the quote where she talks about that because um because you know as a Star Trek fan who's grown up with Star Trek. I had never heard of most of these women, so you know, to me that says, yeah, they're not getting enough credit. You know, if they're not getting any credit at all, you know, I didn't know about the letter writing campaigns. And and granted, I mean, I was not born then, but but still, like, I, I feel like there is some um, credit that maybe is given to Roddenberry for single handedly doing something when in fact he um, he did have a lot of I I think it's interesting that so much of that help is specifically female, though. Um,
0: yeah, I wasn't necessarily reading this as saying we sh- we shouldn't give credit to to Roddenberry, just to credit the uh, women as well, which definitely the fandom did um, have an effect in in that the fact that there is a third <laughs> a third season of the original series uh, a whole other interesting thing that's we don't have time to talk about in this episode, but could be interesting to talk about sometime too is that even though Star Trek is known for like up until relatively recently typically avoiding lgbt issues um the the fandom of star trek is where you get the origination of slash fiction which is a whole uh uh yeah we should have a top uh, episode on slash fiction sometime
1: yeah that's a good idea
0: (laughs)
2: Well, I think one of the things I would have helped. So I thought, I thought that the piece did a good job of explaining the significance of the particular fans that were highlighted. Um, so, you know, organizing the letter writing campaign that results in the third season. Like, yes, I can, I can track that. Um, I'm not familiar enough with the, the behind the scenes, um, crew and, and, and other roles behind the the series to know was DC Fontana one of 13 15 20 people who were in similar roles um and so you know kudos kudos to her but she's not it's not like her and Gene Roddenberry like there it matters sort of to me how many other people are are participating at that level and i couldn't tell from this piece um you know is she sort of like the number 2 to to Roddenberry as far as the the source of ideas like i understand that she wrote as a writer you know, from my understanding with with a show that runs three seasons, you have a lot of writers and you have a lot of story editors and you have a lot of people who have, who pitch ideas. So um, and maybe it wasn't that way. Maybe it was a very short list um, on that show or maybe she was really at the top of that pile of, of folks. But it made it hard for me to sort of mentally credit her with with to know how much of a role to sort of credit her for for that contribution without knowing how many other people so like i can tell lucille ball sole produced sole owner of the production company okay i can understand that or i can understand uh first fanzine or or organizing conventions but i didn't have a way to contextualize uh dc fontana's contribution
0: yeah that's a fair point mm-hmm. well, yeah well with fontana i think uh, part of the important thing too is just that um it there there was a female writer for the original <laughs> series star trek um which you wouldn't like you wouldn't necessarily um, know that without being told, which and is not necessarily typical of um, science fiction sometimes. So it is important to just recognize her existence as one thing. <laughs> yeah,
1: I thought it was interesting that the article didn't talk at all about um, Major Barrett, uh, Bradbury's wife, because oh, yeah, she I kind of wondered she about has too, yeah but, uh, she's been very instrumental in the in the franchise from the beginning and carried on after his death with the you know carrying on his legacy and and working with the show and you know she voiced the computer she had several she was in the original series she was in the next generation she's you know mm-hmm. been in several different iterations she's in of in the, Space the nine series. too is she yeah that's all yeah she sure. makes she makes
2: a couple appearances there i mean same same character is uh next uh-huh. generation uh-huh.
1: but yeah, yeah that's i great.
0: guess she, she's being more on screen than off off screen i suppose might be a reason but she uh, i would imagine oh, sure. have uh, influence off screen as well as so. uh um, and producing uh, other shows that follow Roddenberry's creative um, vision. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, I'm, I'm wondering since since um, all of us, it sounds like well, at least certainly me, are a little bit less familiar with some of the stuff with the original series. Um, do we do we have time to talk about some of the 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 strengths of um, areas of strength for feminism in the later series? Yes, absolutely. Because uh, mm-hmm. I think that that's the well. I know I'll be on firmer footing there.
1: Yeah, um, go for it
2: cause one of the things I thought was interesting is even in our opening discussion of the the female characters that we we had i mean it's it's a lot of seasons, so maybe it's not that many women when you take into account how many different seasons of how many different shows, but it's not a short list I think of female characters um and i think i mean you can you can track it different ways and you can talk about you know which characters had a more a feminine role so you had someone like like crusher who was um uh more maybe more brusque at times but in a in the nurturing role of a physician um um or someone like troy who then is in the counselor mode like you said empathy and so some of these other more feminine attributes um but but there's i think a decent amount of variety in the characters um they're not all the same every time a woman walks on screen you don't you don't necessarily assume you know what she's going to be like. She could be Bolana Taurus, who's got a temper and is a whiz with um, with tech- technology. She could be Troy, who um, tends to sort of think a lot before she talks and be very empathetic and very attuned to what's going on around her. Um, I mean, there, there's just a, a full range. I mentioned Kess before, who's in many ways very much fitting the, the, the stereotype of traditional femininity, but by golly, when she's decided – what she's going to do, nobody's going to sway her from that. And, and there's just there's not she's not going to do anything that she hasn't personally concluded is the right thing to do. There's just a lot of variety there, and I appreciate that kind of character diversity, even if it's not always as much other kinds of diversity as as we would like or as reflects uh, the culture. Character-wise, I feel like they're a fairly diverse bunch of of ladies.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. And I I always take a little bit of issue with the. The articles and stuff I've seen this several times that kind of dismiss, oh, well, Crusher's in a caregiving role and, you know, Troy is in a, a kind of a caregiving role as a counselor because especially Crusher, like, you know, the Federation is a military, paramilitary organization and, you know, the idea of a female doctor is actually, I mean, for a long time, females weren't doctors. That wasn't a thing. And, and then even after that, like the idea of a female military doctor who's going to be caring for, you know, the... Is going to be on a very intimate level with all of the men and women on this ship. um, I think is, is actually kind of bold of them to do, Um, you know, obviously in the original series, we have bones as the, the doctor and um, for, for a long time, you know, female doctors, it it was more like the female nurses. They would be the ones that would do the caregiving, but the doctor, the one who actually, you know, knew what was going on and was the, the authority would be the male. Um, And I would say in military institutions, you know, that, Tends to hold a little bit more true even today than in um, maybe the, the rest of um, society. Um, they just tend to, to have a more, um, I don't know, traditionally male authority. Um, so I, I think it is in a way, you know, important and, and groundbreaking that Crusher is a woman as the doctor, not the nurse. And, you know, that she has, you know, they make a point throughout the show that she's the only one on the ship who has the authority to give the captain orders. Because as the doctor, there are times when she has to order him to sick bay or relieve him of duty. She's one of the only people on the ship who has the authority to relieve the captain of duty. And um, so and that comes up several times. She has to, you know, make that judgment call. And so I think I think it is a a piece of authority that she has that is unique, even though, you know, yes, it may fit under technically the the category of caregiving. I think that it is a lot uh, maybe more of a, a feminist role than some people give her credit for. Did anybody else have anything about um, the later shows that they wanted to bring up as far as uh, strengths of feminism?
0: Well, of course, we could talk about that all day, but maybe we better move on to the next
1: section, I wonder. Okay, sounds good. Um, let's turn to some areas where Star Trek has maybe not done as well for women historically. Uh, Marie, what do you see as some of the problem areas?
0: Okay, well... Um, For this section, we looked at three articles, and I'm just going to summarize them briefly, and then we can uh, comment on these areas, maybe. Um, So the three posts that we read were a breakdown of how each Star Trek series does with the Bechdel test. Um, The second one was a description of how Star Trek has failed to address sexual trafficking when it comes to the Orion slave girls, especially in Uh, enterprise, and the third post uh, gave us an argument that a typical white feminist response to Uhura's romance in the 2009 Star Trek film, um, the response being that this diminishes her character to the girlfriend as opposed to her role as a single professional in the original series, um, that that fails to take into account that this representation of Uhura affirms her sexuality and desirability as a black woman in a way that's not often seen on screen. So, in the first post on the Bechdel test, um, that, that post comes from the Mary Sue in 2014, by the way. We get the percentages of episodes passing the Bechdel test for all the Star Trek series through Enterprise. So, listeners will recall us talking about the Bechdel test before in episode five and subsequent episodes. Um, it's basically the simple bare bones measure of. The, like, semi-realistic presence and portrayal of female characters in media, it originates from Alison Bechdel's comic, Dykes to Watch Out For. To pass the test, a piece of media has to show at least two named female characters talking to each other about something besides a man. Um, So the author of this post, Jarrah Hodge, finds that the original series does the worst with passing this test, with only 7.5% of episodes doing so. Voyager does the best, with an impressive 86.9% of episodes passing. Um, So you could say this is an area of historical weakness for the original series, um, which isn't very surprising, but it you might see it as something of a strength when it comes to Star Trek as a whole. I mean, even the numbers for the next generation and deep space nine, which are 44.9% and 57.8% respectively seem to me to be like actually pretty high when it comes to media in general. And apparently season five of Voyager passes for every single episode, which is uh, very impressive for a season of television. So of course, the fact that these numbers seem pretty good to me is really a measure of weakness. A uh, weakness. This this being an area of weakness for media in general.
1: <laughs> That's a good point.
0: Yeah. Um, then the second post comes from the blog Lady Geek Girl in 2015. The writer there points out that. Uh, Star Trek as a franchise has portrayed the Federation as uninterested in ending the sexual trafficking of Orion women. These are the iconic green women from the original series and they pop up sporadically afterwards in the later series. The Federation even seems to play along with this slave trade, and in a particularly egregious plotline from Enterprise, it's revealed that the Orion women actually want to be enslaved, that the men are the true slaves following the women's orders and controlled by the women's irresistible sexual hormones. So the writer of the post analyzes the multitude of problems with this, not least of which is the way that it parallels the Jezebel stereotype of a slavery era black woman who was thought to be unrapeable because she enjoyed being raped. So definitely this could be taken as an area of weakness for the Star Trek uh, franchise. And, and the third poster read, which comes from live journal in 20 uh, 2009 by a writer whose live journal name is Perry Patea. Um, in this post, the writer identifies an area of weakness for the original series, which is, not again, hard to do, in that Uhura, being this model of a single female professional, really follows more of a white feminist vision, like that of Helen Gurley Brown, who's talked about in the Shannon Mizzy post that we read for the previous section, um, and uh, Despite, of course, this not-to-be-underestimated power of being a black female character on TV, she's not really presented as, in the author's words, a full, real human being worthy of loving and being loved. Um, the, and The author says that this kind of representation of black women in the media is very rare. So from the, uh, this author's perspective, at least, this is actually an area of improvement in the representation of Uhura in the new Star Trek movies, um, in that she has... This, uh, relationship with Spock, and it presents her as this, uh, sort of fully desirable character in addition to her prof- professional aspect. I'm um, gonna have to admit that this post, uh, did make me think, uh, a little better of the, the, the new Star Trek movies when it comes to that Uhura, um, and Spock relationship. So what are you guys' uh, thoughts on these posts that we read?
1: I want to hear um, both of you give me like a 30 second opinion on the Bechdel test in general going forward.
0: Well, I mean, like I said, it is definitely a very bare bones test. So you can pass it and it not be a feminist work at all. Um, Mm -hmm. But it it is like kind of interesting to see how many things don't pass it, because as we as real women in real life know, uh, women do talk to each other about things besides men and so like it's a little it's a little bit of a a very basic measure of the presence of women as human beings <laughs> in the in this piece of media. Um,
1: yeah, that's a good point.
2: Yeah, I appreciated the the author pointing out that this is not like pointing out that the the 2009 Star Trek movie passes because Ahura uh, talks to I forget her roommate's name about the the communication that she intercepted um so they're talking about something other than a man while her undresses with kirk under the bed watching her so it's you know the the fact that it's passing that test is not demonstrate like it's not congratulations you've cleared the bar you're good to go there's no more room for improvement um it, it's, uh, it is yeah, very definitely. much a, a a low bar to clear and as you pointed out marie it's it is reflective of of a lot of things
1: that it is so often not cleared despite being a low bar mm-hmm, for sure Do you guys have anything? I mean, this is off the top of your head, but do you have an alternate litmus test um, for equal treatment of women that you would prescribe that would go maybe beyond the Bechdel test?
0: Hmm. I mean, I hadn't really particularly thought about that, but I guess one thing would be if we do get to uh, hear a, a female character's like internal point of view on topics that come up rather than just remaining
1: superficial. That would be one thing. Oh, that's a good one. I like that.
2: I don't know that I have one off the top of my head. Um, I, yeah, I don't think that I would need to think more about that before I come up with one. I mean, the fact that that we still use this one so much, I mean, may may be a reflection that it can be difficult to articulate an easy, easily applied test. I mean, that one is one that can be sort of applied in a very objective way. Um, And I think a lot of other stuff can be more subjective and can thus make it difficult to sort of have a conversation
1: um, and everyone be working with the same data. That's a good point. There is another one. And I forget the name because it's named after uh, the character from Pacific Rim, but um, it's yes, an alternate. Like Mako test. or something yeah, like yeah, that? Yeah, the Mako Mori test. That's what it is. And it's um, the idea that um, does a female character have a story arc independent of a man? Just in general, like, do Hmm. they have Mm -hmm. anything to do that doesn't have to do with something that the man is, you know, doing? And I think, you know, all of these, um, you know, tests and, and kind of litmus tests or whatever point to the idea that what we're really trying to focus on is, is, is this a male centric show? Because if all the women are doing is talking about men, then the focus is still on the men. You know, if all the women are doing is doing actions or making choices that support whatever the the problem or the issue that the man is dealing with, then it's still a male centric show. so so the the evaluations are all trying to see, you know where is the centrality of the the writing? Does it take away does it does it pull back from just the point of view of a male um, and and look at, Society in general, whether that's the society of the ship or the society of the you know whatever is going on in the show, um, but but do we get to see it from a perspective other than a you know male focused, male centered, male driven plotline you know in one way or another? Uh, what about the what about the um, sexualization and exploitation? Do you guys have cringeworthy moments of overt sexualization that you you know have had to kind of grit your teeth through in some of the Star Trek episodes?
0: Um, well of course there's a time in the Enemy Within when the evil Kirk attacks I think it's Yeoman Rand, um, and then she sort of takes the blame for it, saying like, Oh, I understand he's the captain, he has tensions or whatever like that. Oh no. no.
1: yikes.
2: I tend to have a lot of questions whenever well, often when uh the characters are on the holodeck. Um yeah. I have a lot of questions about the holodeck. So, you know, in, in theory, the holodeck is just interactive media, right? And it's just a more realistic way, I guess, to watch a movie or read a novel. They're all about hollow novels. Um, but sometimes they actually generate holograms of actual people. Um, so there's a, a storyline, um, in next generation where Geordi initially generates a holodeck version of a famous woman scientist to help him with a problem. And then he kind of falls in love with her. Um, at one point, I think, also in Next Generation, Barclay generates a holodeck version of Troy so that he can be romantically involved with her there. Um, on uh, In Deep Space Nine, a um, uh, customer wants to have a holosuite program involving Major Kira, and Quark tries to steal a holodeck image of her, like to image her without her permission so that he can then generate the program to sell to this customer. Um, on uh, On Voyager uh Tuvok is going through his ponfar or something i think and um is going to die and of course if he can uh act on that and he doesn't want to be unfaithful to his wife who is 70 years away and so they they generate a holodeck version of his wife uh, as close to her as possible so that he doesn't feel that he's being unfaithful um and then uh they also have another uh, Vulcan who goes through ponfar and they create a holodeck character to help him deal with that um all of those, I think, generate some some really sticky, yucky questions of consent. And in fact, like the female scientist that Geordi um, has created this program around does find out about it and is clearly not happy. Uh, Major Kira clearly is not happy that that Quark is trying to generate a program of her as well. Um, so... Um, Yeah, I have I have real questions about what that looks like for consent and using the image of another person. Um, And I I realize that to some degree, we can't control what images other people are going to be using for the purpose of lust. Um, But the, the idea of that, them having sort of technology helping them with that um, in in a supposed utopian society. And I just, I don't remember them having a clearly articulated set of rules. Like, it is a violation and you will be disciplined if you call up a holographic image of, you know, another Starfleet member uh, for anything other than professional necessary purposes. Uh, they don't seem to have guidelines about that. No, they don't. Um, and and I just, I feel like that's a, a real oversight um, and, and a way that, I I think it would feel like a violation that someone generated an image of you and made that image do something, even if you yourself are not um, participating in that. I think it has implications for consent. And I think. Yeah, so I think I think if you write if you have the the real people like images of real people, that's a problem. But even the ones that that aren't real people. I mean, I I have real questions about the ethics of of breeding that kind of objectification. Uh, And I don't know if the argument is that the Starfleet members are able to clearly delineate the difference between a hologram who they can then lust over and treat purely as an, literally as an object for their pleasure. um, Not a human at all, just a means of gratification. Um, And they can just never have that bleed over into the way they, the way they interact with humans, you know, actually on the ship, despite the fact that to all five senses, those experiences are the same. Um, But even if that's the case, like, like I just I, I have questions about that is that gonna undermine your ability to have relationships if you then i don't know it, it's it's sort of a thorny like pornography and lust and and objectification and consent, and it's this giant nasty mess of stuff, and I feel like they never engage with it um. Do you guys have thoughts
1: about any of this? Yeah, that's a really good point, especially because they have such strict guidelines on the holodeck about other things. Like um, there's several points where it comes up that the holodeck can't create anything dangerous. It can't create weapons. It can't create bombs. And they have to, like, override those precautions a few times in order to, you know, get out of whatever mess they're in. But there seem to be absolutely no rules about um, you know, creating other people, even though it, like you said, like Troy is upset when she sees Barclay's image of her and, and Leah Brahms is very upset. She calls it a violation um, when she sees what what Jordy has done, even though like all Jordy did was like kiss her at the very end and, you know, basically kind of fall in love with her. There, he didn't, you know, do anything beyond that, but she still said, you know, I've been violated. And um, so you know, we see over and over again that this does you know, cause distress. It is hurtful to them. And yet there don't seem to be any guidelines and it never seems to be like, you shouldn't have done this, like beyond on like a, a rules level. It's you shouldn't have done this because it hurt me, but it's not like you, you broke, you know, section five, a of the holodeck program code or something like that. You know, there's no, there's no reference to that. And um, I'm wondering if part of this is a reflection of um, Gene Roddenberry's kind of futuristic view of like relationships and sex. He was very much, um, he had this idea that, like, in this perfect future utopia, like free love would be you know uh just kind of everybody would be able to have relationships with whoever they wanted, and it wouldn't be um seen as anything wrong and um so that that comes out pretty quickly in the first season um the the naked now where they're all kind of sleeping together, and they they get infected with some kind of thing that makes them very um extra lusty and um but but that was part of his idea he was always pushing for um this this utopia of free love and i wonder if if some of that is the reason that there aren't more restrictions on that um, marie what do you think
0: hmm yeah i mean i haven't really thought about the holodeck in, uh and in, in those terms before but it makes a lot of sense and i guess i want I, I wonder if some of it might go uh into like the the feminist debates uh like the pro pornography fin- feminism and anti pornography feminism, and that kind of split um I wonder if any of the episodes might be commenting on that in some way, but i yeah, I have not thought about that enough to <laughs> that's a good point <laughs> well, and I think
2: like there? right even even there right you've got okay you people are you know functionally at you know sailors at sea for years at a time right and and so you know, I can understand, okay, well, they have, they have needs and rather than having sexual tension build on the ship, like I have thoughts about that from a moral perspective, but I get that from a narrative a narrative perspective. The problem I have is we don't see any kind of, like, rules about, okay, you can have, a you know, your fantasy encounter. You're not allowed to have a fantasy about being the owner of the Orion Slave Girls or about, you know, because you're going to have some really demeaning, wicked fantasies that someone might want to have acted out on the holodeck, and you might want to have rules about that. Like, you, can, you can't you can go in there and have a holodeck where you get to rape someone. That's not going to be okay. Um, and we do actually see at least um, Tuvok on a – on uh, Voyager uses the holodeck when he's feeling urges to murder someone because of a mind meld that that he did that like he goes in and he does the murder on the holodeck. So like, th- you know, th- there's, there don't seem to be any of those restrictions, even, even if you assume it's viewed as a healthy outlet for sexual tension um, with a sort of a pro pornography viewpoint, I think it doesn't make sense there because again, I think that that you would want to have some kind of a rule for you can't, you know, you can't go in and you know, live out a fantasy of genocide. Like you can't go in and, and, and do certain things. Um, and I realized that part of that the, is that the, the Star Trek is sort of built around a, a humans as innately good viewpoint. Uh, and so yes, that, that's I think very there's that, true. that utopian, like, well, once we've taken away hunger and the need for money and all of these other things, people just won't do that. They won't do, they won't have wicked fantasies. Um, although I think we see some evidence that stuff still happens and, um, and, of course, I would I would take issue with that view of humanity. Um, and then the only other point I wanted to make about the holodeck was also that we do have holograms who start to cross over into personhood. Um, and I really yes. think it's not all of them. A lot of them are just supposed to be um, – you know, characters that are written and you, you can write a character and write a character that has sex with another character. And we don't view that as a, a lack of consent. If you're a novelist and you're having a character in your novel, have sex with someone else. um, You're not, you know, it's not a a person, but you have the doctor and Voyager, you have uh, Moriarty on, um, on next generation. And then um, even I think Vic, the lounge singer in um, deep space nine starts to sort of cross over into that um, where they become more sentient. And, and so, uh, and I think there's an episode I haven't gotten to in Voyager that also deals with uh, a holographic character that Janeway has a relationship
0: with. Yeah, there's it. a whole village that's sort of becoming sentient in that way.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So that's another sort of wrench to throw into the mix, um, as well. But yeah, it's just I realize it's just a plot a plot device. Like they just need the holodeck when they need it, how they need it, and they don't have a consistent. Um, sort of uh philosophy of the holodeck, but I think it's missing. I think they need to have that because it's 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 inconsistent with the rest of Star
1: Starfleet's um, above board regulation system. Yeah, I think those are really good points. Um let's talk about the the kind of whitewashing of feminism issue um, as we move into um, areas of progress because that article that you were talking about, Marie, um, talked about some of the the progress that she sees through Uhura's new relationship with Spock so um, like how have the new movies the Chris Pine movies the the most recent ones that have come out um, how have those movies progressed in any of these areas that we've that we've kind of seen them lacking in do you guys have any thoughts on that
0: Um, well like I said I I saw the movies in theaters but I don't remember them super well Um, but this uh this writer did make me think that uh, because actually the the reaction she points out that um oh who is reduced to a girlfriend role was my original reaction but um her post did make me think that oh yeah there's probably more going into that um and it is uh at one point in the post she's like oh my god a black woman on tv and she's with spock who's this icon um like there, there's a certain
1: uh, power to that representation. Yeah, I agree. I had not thought of that, which shows kind of my privilege and shelter, I think. But I was I was happy to be corrected by reading that um, uh, that article, even though um, I will get a little bit of a, a language warning on that one. There is a little bit of stronger right, language yeah. than, than usual, but it, I think that even then, it is still worth watching or uh, reading because. Um, I'm not going to silence the message because I don't like the words that are used in it, if that makes sense. Um, And I think that it is an important message that we hear from um, a black woman's perspective, seeing this character and the the deepening of her story arc, giving her more um, personhood by giving her this relationship and this agency, um, I think is is important.
2: I think, too, other than that, and I, I might be mistaken here, but I think I feel like a movie is often if you're making a movie the idea is it needs to be have a wider appeal maybe even than a TV show because you you need part of the market for a TV show but I just it feels like maybe you need more I feel like movies that come out big blockbusters tend to be sort of wanting to capture more of the market share of viewers and again I may be wrong about this but like that makes me feel like I feel like the the new movies in many ways Backtrack in progress and I think part of that's because they're movies and they're they're expected to appeal to a broader base and so they don't have that same flexibility to push back that a TV show can have where it has a little bit more of a niche audience and And I know that the, the Star Trek shows are, are popular and they need to be popular because they're their network shows. But there's something about the the medium that I wonder if it's affecting it and the fact that you're telling, again, a single story rather than, uh, you know, 20 something episodes where you can really push on a couple episodes, but then sort of scale back future episodes so that you're not alienating viewers who maybe aren't quite as progressive on certain issues. So I, I feel like I mean, I appreciated the point about Uhura. But other than that, I mean, it it's not I, I don't know that it's making progress and building on um what's come before it i, I feel like in many ways it, it feels like a regression just because it's a movie that, i yeah that i agree with yeah. that 100 i mean, they, they
0: also yeah. don't necessarily like have the star trek feel to me <laughs> like That's getting true. into questions of morality and ethics and what it means to be human and so on it's more just uh fun action which is fun
1: yeah yeah, yeah, I agree. It, I agree. They're yeah, fun, but fair. they're not necessarily nuanced in the way that a lot of Star Trek is nuanced, Yeah. You know? Um In the interest of time, let's move on to talking about Discovery, because I want to make sure that we get to that. Um, how... we're we're mainly focusing on just the feminist aspect of discovery because I have all of the opinions with capital O's on the show in general, but specifically focused on on the the feminist uh, aspects. Do you think that discovery is um, an improvement in the way that it treats women?
0: Okay. So I have some thoughts on the areas that we've been talking about when it comes to discovery. I mean, obviously first, first of all, we have a central character, which is a departure from your typical Star Trek show, which has more of an ensemble cast. But we have a central character, and she's a black woman, Michael Burnham. Um, so that's in itself a big deal in terms of, like the choice of of character and representation, and she is presented as this full human character, including a romance arc, but also including character flaws and family struggles and emotional blockages, questionable choices, all these different things. So uh, I just want to get out of the way that obviously the choice to have Michael Burnham as a central character is a big deal here. Um, as far as women off-screen, the topic we talked about, there there are in Discovery a few women on the writing team, which uh, seems like a good thing to me. And two of the episodes in season one are directed by women, which doesn't sound like much, um, but it kind of is when you consider that only thirty-five of the, I think it's something like seven hundred and three live-action episodes before Discovery were directed by women, so a pretty good proportion. Um, When it comes to the Bechdel test, there is, I think, definite and self-conscious improvement going on in Discovery because every single episode of season one passes the test. Um, And part of this, again, is due to having Michael Burnham as a central character, um, which is kind of. Uh, similar to the reason why the numbers on Voyager are higher than the other series, because having Janeway as the captain, she would have a lot of interactions with the other characters. Um, it's a similar thing going on with Michael Burnham. Actually, uh, a little bit of a weakness when it comes to the Bechdel test and discovery is that I think there would only be a couple episodes that would pass if Michael Burnham weren't there. Um, those would be largely due to uh, a female admiral and uh, this Klingon woman talking to each other a couple times. Um, I think it's also worth noting with Discovery that every episode of season one also passes the person of color version of the Bechdel test, which is just what it sounds like, two named characters of color who talk to each other about something besides a white person. Um, And again, that's uh, largely due to Michael being the main character. And um, in terms of representation also with Discovery, it's notable that it's trying to break out of what I mentioned earlier, this longtime Star Trek avoidance of explicitly including LGBT characters, although I was a little disappointed that the narrative uh, for Lieutenant Stamets and his partner, Dr. Kolber, does sort of fall into this disappointing narrative common pitfall when it comes to media representations of same-sex couples. Which you'll have to watch to find out what that narrative pitfall is, but well handled. <laughs> uh, and also, discovery does seem to continue some problems that we saw with the Deep Space 9 mirror universe with portraying bisexuality as this kind of dark oversexualization that typifies the perversion of the mirror universe. So that's a little bit of a problem maybe. Um, in terms of the Orion women, there has been one discovery episode uh, in season one that's addressed them so far, and uh, it hasn't—it didn't seem to me to do much to correct any of the problems that the Lady Geek Girl post pointed out. Um, In that episode, when a group of central characters visits an Orion community, um, there does seem to be sort of an effort on the part of the episode to suggest that the Orion workers in a brothel, who are both men and women in this case, should be kind of validated as sex workers. But at the same time, the episode seems to acknowledge that the Orion slave trade is going on, Um, when this Orion community is first mentioned. So there's like some kind of disconnect (laughs) here between like saying there's slave trade, but also validate the sex workers. I don't know. Um, And there's also a character who purchases time with two of the Orions in the brothel, which is pretty problematic, given that there's no reason to assume that this brothel is not connected with the Orion sex trafficking. Um, Although of course, who this character is, uh if you watch it you'll you'll realize um might not be this might not be presenting this as a good action given who the character is but the other characters don't object to this happening um i'm hoping though that this might be setting up a later plot line that might deal with the, the orion sex trafficking in a better way um same way i'm sort of hoping that there's there's all these kind of throwaway racist slurs against the tolerant species in the Starfleet. okay
1: right Earth thank
0: you I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that must be setting up something that's going to come later because it's
1: kind of weird. <laughs> so. I wondered that too.
0: So what do you guys think?
1: Alexis? You- well, one of the
2: one of the questions that, or one of the things I thought was really interesting was um, not just to have Michael Burnham as a woman, right? Because this is a stereotypically male name, right? But, but a woman, black woman, um, black woman raised in a Vulcan environment. Um, and so not only are we seeing a black woman, but like, so to go back to the the piece that we read on on Lieutenant Uhura, like, she is not the sassy black friend. Like, not only is she not the friend, she's the main character, but she's not the sassy gif, you know, black friend like she is completely restrained because of her Vulcan upbringing. So really pushing back against Um, that stereotype I thought was a really interesting choice. Um, uh, The character Tuvok from Voyager was a black male Vulcan, right? But at least there you have the the stereotype of male rationality that could maybe uh, make that work a little bit better. But here it's really pushing it back against some of the stereotypes and some of the ways that, that I think black women have been portrayed historically to have her be someone still human, but with all of this Vulcan training um that affects the way that she engages with her emotions. So I thought that was really a really interesting choice um, that was made. Um, and then I also thought it was interesting that um some of the, yeah, so there's, there's a lot of, there, there's certainly some representation of persons of color and of women, but I also felt like uh, there's some, some, Ways that those populations seem to be disproportionately affected by bad things that happened on the ship, uh, I guess. Um, yeah, we we start off with maybe more of those characters than we end up with, I guess, um, uh, which I thought was also an interesting choice. And I realized because of the Mirror Universe, some of those characters might not actually be gone. It's one of the things about the Mirror Universe. I hate, I always hate <laughs> the Mirror Universes. Always, always hate them. But I uh, especially hate them when we don't even know what the characters are like yet in the regular universe so that um, is particularly frustrating when you're now trying to mm-hmm. deal with the mirrorverse, verse, but, um, but yes, yeah, so you have some, some characters who had the potential to bring a, a more diverse casting and then they, they don't necessarily stick around for very long. Um, yeah. I, I found that, really that interesting. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. I thought that was very frustrating because I was excited at the beginning to see some of these specific characters and then like, Oh no, there they go. Okay. Yep. 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 Um,
2: and yeah, so I thought that that was definitely uh, interesting. And I, I guess I'm not entirely sure whether or not this is an improvement over Voyager as far as as far as feminism, because as uh, as you said, Marie, like because of Janeway, um, we got a lot of female character. Like we got to see a strong woman on the screen and we got to know about sort of what she was thinking about, what her goals were. um, And. Given how long it's been since that show, I'm a little surprised that I don't feel like we're that much better. I
1: agree. I don't know
2: that there are that many more women. I mean, you pointed out uh-huh. that they're not going to pass the Bechdel test without Burnham. They're not going to pass the Bechdel test without Tilly. The only reason they pass it yeah. <laughs> is because she's got a girl, a girlfriend she can talk to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you take her out and who is Michael Burnham going to talk to that's going to get, get the Bechdel? Like they're not, you're not going to have anyone. Yeah. Um, yeah. and so as far as you, you have, you know, whatever, a, a a couple, a few, uh, female characters who are Either recurring or regular cast. I just I don't see that as a, a real improvement over Janeway and Taurus and Kess. Like, that's about the same proportion that we're seeing. Um, so, I would say maybe racial diversity seems to be improving, but I, I'm not really convinced that this is more um, necessarily more feminist than Voyager. Yeah, I
1: definitely agree with, with everything that you said there. Um, one thing that I did notice that I thought was an interesting. I don't know if it's an improvement, but at least a continuation of um, what you were talking about, Alexis, in one of those first articles is that we get to see um, an exploration of toxic masculinity through Captain Lorca, that his character um, plays off of Michael Burnham's character as this kind of irrational, flawed um Kind of uh, high hyper masculine, you know. I'm gonna take charge and do what I want and flout the, you know, rules and the commands and the orders and everything. And 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 Michael Burnham has her issues with you know, following orders too. But but I do think it's interesting that this is the first time we see a captain who is not only not the central character of the show really, but a deeply flawed character. Um, and we get to see. Um, Because he is a male and so many of the uh, you know, she's she's not we get to see kind of um, his aggression and his vindictiveness opposite her cold logic and her at least I mean, she's not as cold logic as Spock, but still like her more dispassionate evaluation of of facts. It's kind of a a twisting of um, typical. Um, casting of, you know, male and female uh, opposites. So I, I did think that was interesting. I also really liked um, that the female Klingon character was um, a big part of the the plot line. She You don't see a lot of female characters other than like Lurs and Bator, and they're definitely portrayed as, you know, um, overly sexualized um, and, and ambitious, but in a, a kind of more sneaky way than the typical Klingon aggression. And we see um, this this female Klingon character is much more she's definitely sneaky and, and underhanded and stuff but I, I think it's interesting that they're exploring kind of female characters from more than one society at the same time and how they interact I, I thought that was that was interesting
0: yeah well of course she has she has no women to interact
1: with <laughs> true either. yeah true and I in a way like I don't know, like in Klingon society, that kind of makes sense because it's well known that they devalue women um so but but it's still it's interesting to kind of see that portrayal of a very patriarchal society um and to see a woman who's somehow mm-hmm. kind of risen up through the ranks anyway, and how she survives everything, yeah, although
2: she's done so as as an outsider who's made the most yes. of her. Or for outsider status, I also think we have to be a little bit careful because I don't want to give them the credit for doing things because that's how Klingons are when they clearly do not care how Klingons are. Oh yeah. yeah. So um, I'm not going to give them a narrative benefit of the doubt for why they're characterizing people a certain way if they don't care about the the, the race and how it's actually portrayed um, in the rest of the series. Like there's these are not. That functionally, they're not Klingon. That's they're so just true. some hyper aggressive. They could just just as easily been some brand new race we've never encountered before, um, because they're they're culturally un- unrecognizable. But <laughs> that's so true. Which is not an issue with feminism. So sure, we'll bring yeah. kind of <laughs> that back in. But. one of
1: my opinions. Yes. Um, all right. Well, yeah. well, do y'all have any closing comments or anything that we didn't get to that you wanted to bring up before we wrap it up? Um, I think. So, are we into our final thoughts and takeaways at this point, or are we? Yeah, go ahead. I know we've got so much more to say, but I want to be careful of time.
2: Sure. Um, so, I, I think one of the, the questions that you had mentioned wanting to talk about is does the good outweigh the bad? And I think here, nothing that we're seeing, I don't think rises to the level of badness where, like, you're a worse person once you've seen it or you're somehow tainted by it. I mean, I think there can be content that is actually harmful to watch. I just don't think any of this rises to that level. I think instead you take it and you you sift it, right? You take the good and leave the bad. Um, and as with any good science fiction, it should make you think. And the bad episodes can make you think just as much as the good ones. Um, and I, you can think through, you know, why did that episode bug me or what's, what's the choice here that's irritating? So I think that is... Um, Yeah, I think it it is, it is, there is enough good there to justify uh, continuing to watch the show, um, at least from a, from a feminist perspective. One sort of other random uh, feminist issue that I, I have, it bugs me so much that they changed their tagline to boldly go where no one has gone before, because no one implies personhood. And everywhere they're going that they encounter a foreign race or an alien race. Ones have gone before because the people who are there, the, the characters who are there, are ones. That's a really good um, point. And so they're not going where no, unless they're going to space where there's not been any sentient living beings. That's the only time they can say they're boldly going where no one has gone before, because the races are are ones as, as well. And so I, I understand the choice. Um, I also tend to think that that people can be grown up enough to understand that the term man can be an umbrella term for mankind or for humanity. And I understand that where no human has gone before sounds clunky. And I understand that the Federation is not just humans. So I, I get that there are some some limitations and I understand the impulse there. But every time they say that it bugs me because there are there are sentient life forms where they are going and they've been there you're not discovering that area of space you are encountering them but someone has gone
1: there before because someone lives there that's really interesting that's That's, that i've never thought about that before but that's like a huge echo of like you know columbus and all of that like you know we have discovered it. no no we've been here you know that, that idea
0: yeah and that's really sort of the main thing that i'm i hope to see addressed in future star treks is more the sort of explicit dealing with like colonization and colonialism and Discovery is like kind of trying in a half-hearted, conflicted way so far. But uh, (laughs) yeah, it's something that needs to happen.
2: (laughs) Well, I think that's a good point because it's, it's intention a little bit because of the way the Federation and I realize we're, we're pre original series with Discovery. So maybe they haven't articulated all of this completely, but the idea is not to go and fix everyone that they encounter so it'd be one thing if you were talking about you know the Orion slave trade and talking about it as a culture that's not part of the federation and so what's you know, what's our justification for coming in and and forcing change on them and those are really interesting mm-hmm. questions Uh, Because they have to decide this, you know, whether it's the prime directive or whether it's specific injustices. In fact, one of the reasons why I refused to keep watching Stargate, which my husband also tried to get me to watch, was because they were so inconsistent from episode to episode, whether the cultures that they were encountering needed to be fixed and brought up to speed um, immediately or whether they were just there to observe and they couldn't interfere um, and they were so inconsistent and so not acknowledging their inconsistency. It just drove me up a wall. But at least Star Trek historically tries to have a conversation about why they can't intervene in a particular circumstance or why they feel like it's appropriate to intervene uh, in another circumstance. And I think that's a way that they can deal with some of that um, colonial mentality. Right. If they're coming in, how do you you know, how do you, you know, liberate the Orion sex slaves um, in a way that is not enforcing your you know federation morality on them and what do we think about universal morality and all these other questions which Mm -hmm. i'm sure we'll get to you know in an episode on faith but um but those are really interesting questions to deal with as you're encountering other cultures what gives you the
1: right to meddle yeah those are really good points all right anybody else have anything all right um let's move to passing on then um Alexis, do you have uh, anything that you want to recommend, favorite episode from a feminist perspective or other resources or similar shows that you want to recommend? Well, I couldn't
2: think of one that, that that was a favorite episode or a similar show. So what I am going to recommend, actually, I, I think science fiction, like I said, I think it works best in a short form. Um, and I think it's a lot easier for it to work well in a written form, partly because the costs are so much lower. So the benefits, like you you don't have to, like you're a lot freer to push boundaries because you don't have the same costs associated with it. It's cheaper to produce. And so you don't have to have as many people like it or whatever. Anyway, my recommendation is Octavia Butler's short story, blood child, uh, which is a fan uh, a fascinating story dealing with issues of, uh, yeah, I think a lot of feminist issues is a really, it's a really good story. Uh, I think the, the hook for it is she wanted to write a story, uh, about male pregnancy, but also, um, uh, but not necessarily as a uh, a violation, but as a choice made out of love, um, and so it's just, it's a fascinating short story. So I want to recommend that um, for other for folks who are maybe not sold on science fiction um, or its value, I also want to recommend an essay by Ray Bradbury that was in the introduction to the anthology Science Fact slash Fiction, called Science Fiction Before Christ and After 2001, that explains why he thinks science fiction has so much value. Um, and is not just something, you know, for silly children to read. Um, and then finally, if you are a fan of the original series, in part because you love the ridiculousness of William Shatner, I feel it incumbent upon me to let you know he came out with a Christmas album this year called Shatner Clause. So do with that information what you will. That's amazing.
1: <laughs> All right, Marie, what about you?
0: Um. Well, I mean, of course, it's hard to identify any kind of really favorite Star Trek episode, so I'm not going to do that. But I think one that could be worth mentioning is uh, Deep Space Nine, Season Four, Episode Six, Rejoined, um, in which Jadzia Dax encounters this other Trill whose symbiont used to be joined with the spouse of one of Dax's past host, which sounds complicated, but yeah, long wow. story short, the other symbiont is now in a female host, and at one point Jatsia and this character kiss. So um, we know the original series famously is often claimed to have the first interracial kiss in American television between Kirk and her and Plato's stepchildren. It wasn't quite the first, but close. Um, this also wasn't quite the first female-female kiss in American television, but it was, it was close to it. So it's a kind of important episode, and it's an exception to Star Trek's general avoidance of all things um, LGBT.
1: And, I remember when that came out, it was a big deal. I yeah, remember there yeah. was a lot of controversy about it. Yeah.
0: Um and I'll also uh, recommend, since we read a post by them, uh, a science fiction novel by Rivers Solomon, An Unkindness of Ghosts, which is has a really creative, interesting uh, generation ship premise. Basically, it's the old South in a generation ship. Um, it has central non-binary characters of color, and it also touches on religion in an interesting way. So that's a, kind of a fun read.
1: Well, that does sound interesting. Um, my recommendation, um, I have two. One, um, for, for my favorite episode from a feminist perspective, which is different from my favorite episode just for enjoyment, um, is uh, Next Generation Season 4, Episode 3. It's called Remember Me. It's the one where um, Crusher ends up uh, caught in a warp bubble, and um, people start disappearing, and she has to figure out why people are disappearing and why nobody remembers them. Um, and... Uh, Medium did an article about how this article, this um, episode, is actually um, kind of prescient in its ideas about believing women and about how um, even in this alternate reality that you know Crusher ends up in, that Picard and the other crew members. Um, they take her claims at face value, even with no evidence. And they they believe her when she says something is wrong. And and even though, you know, at some points they do kind of question like, well, are you sure it's not just you? Like Picard says, you know, well, your word has always been enough for me. And and um it, and there's a, a really interesting point at the very end where she says um, well, if there's nothing wrong with me, maybe there's something wrong with the universe. And I remember like laughing when I first heard that because I was like, well, that's that's an extreme position to take. But it's actually in a way, I mean, that's a great teaching point for this idea that like if you know in your heart that if something is wrong, even if everybody else is telling you, oh, it's just the way we've always ended, or oh no, this is fine, this is the way it's always been you you can affect change and you can push for that even if you seem to be the only person in the literal universe who's aware that there's something wrong. And I think that that can be very powerful when viewed from a feminist perspective. Um, and I also recommend uh, Trekkie Feminist. It's a blog. Um, they have great articles about all kinds of things related to Star Trek and feminism. Um, and they actually have a an article about uh, viewing Star Trek through a feminist lens that we'll put the link on the, the show notes. But Um, It goes through a whole bunch of questions to ask while you're viewing and about how, you know, this isn't something laborious. It can be fun. It can be interesting. And um, it can be a way to kind of um, see things that you later can't unsee as far as how shows, you know, treat women and, and write women and address you know, women's issues and things like that. Um, So it's a a good kind of in general list of questions to evaluate any show that you're watching uh, from a feminist perspective, but especially um, she does it in reference to Star Trek. So, Um, all right. Well, um, for uh, Marie Hawes and Alexis Neal, thank you for listening to Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you if you have a topic or a reading recommendation for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page and check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at ChristianHumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio. Human, the Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippik is our press liaison, and El- Ellen Peterson is our intern. Free Marie Halls and Alexis Neal, I'm Aaliyah Danner Grubbs. Turn in in two weeks when we discuss women in comedy. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love.